Part two of Chapter twenty two of Mr. Prohack by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part two of Chapter twenty two. Four. I never in all my life, said Sissy, saw you eat so much, Dad. And I think it's a great compliment to my cooking. In fact, I'm bursting with modest pride. Well, replied Mr. Prohack, who had undoubtedly eaten rather too much. Take it how you like. I do believe I could do with a bit more of this stuff that imitates an omelette but obviously isn't one. Oh, but there isn't any more, said Sissy, somewhat dashed. No more? Good heavens! And have you got some cheese or anything of that sort? No, I don't keep cheese in the place. You see, the smell of it in these little flats. Any bread? Anything at all? I'm afraid we've finished up pretty nearly all there was, except Ozzy's egg for breakfast tomorrow morning. "'This is serious,' observed Mr. Prohack, tapping inquiringly the superficies of his digestive apparatus. "'Arthur,' cried Eve, "'why are you such a tease to-night? You're only trying to make the child feel awkward. You know you've had quite enough, and I'm sure it was all very cleverly cooked, considering. You'll be ill in the middle of the night if you keep on, and then I shall have to get up and look after you, as usual.' Eve had the air of defending her daughter, but something, some reserve in her voice, showed that she was defending not her daughter, but merely and generally the whole race of housewives against the whole race of consuming and hypocritical males. She was even defending the Eve who had provided much criticised meals in the distant past. Such was her skill that she could do this while implying, so subtly yet so effectively, that Sissy, the wicked, shameless, mamma-scorning bride, was by no means forgiven in the secret heart of the mother. "'You are doubtless right, lady,' Mr. Brohack agreed. You always could judge better than I could myself, when I'd had enough, of what would be the ultimate consequences of my eating. And as for your lessons in manners, what an ill-bred lout I was before I met you! What an impossible person I should have been had you not taken me in hand, night and day, for all these years! It isn't that I'm worse than the average husband. It is merely that wives are the sole repositories of the civilizing influence. Were it not for them, we should still be tearing stakes to pieces with our fingers, I dare say I have eaten enough. Anyhow, I've had far more than anybody else. And even if I hadn't, it would not be at all nice of it not to pretend that I hadn't. And after all, if the worst comes to the worst, I can always have a slice of cold beef and a glass of beer when I get home, can't I? Sissy, though blushing ever so little, maintained an excellent front. She certainly looked dainty and charming, more specifically so than she had ever looked, indeed, utterly the young bride. She was in mourning dress, to comply with her own edict against formality, and also to mark her new enthusiastic disapproval of the modern craze for luxurious display. But it was a delightful, if inexpensive, dress. She had taken considerable trouble over the family dinner, devising, concocting, cooking, and presiding over it from beginning to end, and being consistently bright, wise, able, and resourceful throughout. An apostle of chafing-dish cookery, determined to prove that chafing-dish cookery combined efficiency, toothsomeness, and economy to a degree never before known. And she had neatly pointed out more than once that waste was impossible under her system, and that, servants being dispensed with, the great originating cause of waste had indeed been radically removed. She had not informed her guests of the precise cost in money of the unprecedentedly cheap and nourishing meal, but she had come near to doing so, and she would surely have indicated that there had been neither too much nor too little, but just amply sufficient, 
had not her absurd and contrarious father displayed a not uncharacteristic lack of tact at the closing stage of the ingenious collation. Moreover, she seemed, despite her generous build, to have somehow fitted herself to the small size of the flat. She did not dwarf it, as clumsy women are apt to dwarf their tiny homes in the centre of London. On the contrary, she gave to it the illusion of spaciousness, and beyond question she had, in a surprisingly short time, transformed it from a bachelor's flat into a conjugal nest, cushiony, flowery, knick-knacky, and perilously seductive to the eye, without being too reassuring to the limbs. Mr. Prohack was accepting a cigarette, having been told that Ozzie never smoked cigars, when there was a great ring which filled the entire flat, as the last trump may be expected to fill the entire earth, and Mr. Prohack dropped the cigarette, muttering, I think I'll smoke that afterwards. Good gracious, the flat mistress exclaimed. I wonder who that can be. Just go and see Ozzie, darling. And she looked at Ozzie as if to say, I hope it isn't one of your indiscreet bachelor friends. Ozzie hastened obediently out. It may be Charlie, ventured Eve. Wouldn't it be nice if he called? Yes, wouldn't it, Cissy agreed. I did phone him up to try to get him to dinner, but naturally he was away for the day. He's always as invisible as a millionaire nowadays. Besides, I feel somehow this place would be too much, too humble for the mighty Charles. Buckingham Palace would be more in his line. But we can't all be speculators and profiteers. Cissy, protested their mother mildly. After mysterious and intriguing noises at the front door had finished, and the front door had made the whole flat vibrate to its bang, Ozzie puffed into the room with three packages the two smaller being piled upon the third. "'They're addressed to you,' said Ozzie to his father-in-law. "'Did you give the man anything?' Cissy asked quickly. "'No, it was Carthew on the parlour-maid. Uh, Machin, is that her name?' "'Oh,' said Cissy, apparently relieved. "'Now, let us see,' said Mr. Prohack, starting at once upon the packages. "'Don't waste that string, Dad,' Cissy enjoined him anxiously. "'Huh? what do you say?' murmured Mr. Prohack carefully cutting string on all sides of all packages, and tearing first-rate brown paper into useless strips. He produced from the packages four bottles of champagne of four different brands, a quantity of pâté de foie gras, a jar of caviar, and several bunches of grapes that must have been grown under the most unnatural and costly conditions. "'Whatever's this?' Cissy demanded uneasily. "'Arthur,' said Eve, "'whatever's the meaning of this?' It has a deep significance, replied Mr. Prohack. The only fault I have to find with it is that it has arrived rather late, and yet perhaps, like Blucher, not too late. You can call it a wedding present if you choose, daughter. Or, if you choose, you can call it simply caviar, pâté de foie gras, grapes, and champagne. I really have not had the courage to give you a wedding present, he continued, knowing how particular you are about ostentation. But I thought if I sent something along that we could all join in consuming instantly— I couldn't possibly do any harm. "'We haven't any champagne-glasses,' said Sissy, coldly. "'Champagne-glasses, child? You ought never to drink champagne out of champagne-glasses. Tumblers are the only thing for champagne. Some tumblers, Ozzie, and a tin-opener. You must have a tin-opener. I feel convinced you have a tin-opener. Upon my soul, Eve, I was right after all. I am hungry, but my hunger is nothing to my thirst. I am beginning to suspect that I must be the average sensual man.' "'Arthur,' Eve warned him, "'if you eat any of that caviar, you're bound to be ill.' "'Not if I mix it with pâté de foie gras, my pet,' 
it is notorious that they are mutual antidotes, especially when followed by the grape cure. Now, ladies and Aussie, don't exasperate me by being coy. Fall to. Ingurgitate. Aussie, be a man for a change. Mr. Brohack seemed to intimidate everybody to such an extent that Sissy herself went off to secure tumblers. But why are you opening another bottle, father? she asked in alarm on her return. This one isn't half empty. We shall try all four brands, said Mr. Prohack. But what a waste! No, my child, said Mr. Prohack, with marked and solemn sententiousness, know that, in an elaborately organised society, waste has its moral uses. Know further that nothing is more contrary to the truth than the proverb that enough is as good as a feast. Know still further that though the habit of wastefulness may have its dangers, it is not nearly so dangerous as the habit of self-righteousness, or as the habit of nearness both of which contract the soul until it's more like a prune than a plum. Be a plum, my child, and let who will be a prune. It was this moment that Eve showed her true greatness. Come along, Sissy, said she, after an assaying glance at her husband and another at her daughter. Let's humour him. It isn't often he's in such good spirits, is it? Sissy's face cleared, and with a wisdom really beyond her years, she accepted the situation, the insult, the reproof, the lesson. As for Mr. Prohack, he felt happier, more gay than he had felt all day, not as the effect of champagne and caviar, but as the effect of the realisation of his prodigious sagacity in having foreseen that Sissy's hospitality would be what it had been. He was glad, also, that his daughter had displayed common sense, and he began to admire her again, and in proportion, as she perceived that he was admiring her, so she consciously increased her charm. For the fact was, she was very young, very impressionable, very anxious to do the right thing. "'Have another glass, Ozzie,' urged Mr. Prohack. Ozzie looked at his powerful bride for guidance. "'Do have another glass, you darling old silly,' said the bride. "'There will be no need to open the other two bottles,' said Mr. Prohack. "'Indeed, I need only have opened one. I shall probably call here again soon.' At this point there was another ring at the front door. "'So you've condescended!' Sissy greeted Charles, when Ozzy brought him into the room, and then, catching her father's eye and being anxious to rest secure in the paternal admiration, she added, "'Anyway, it was very decent of you to come. I know how busy you are.' Charles raised his eyebrows at this astonishing piece of sisterliness. His mother kissed him fondly, having received from Mr. Prohack during the day the delicatest, filmiest hint that perhaps Charlie was not at the moment fabulously prospering. "'Your father is very gay to-night,' said she, gazing at Charlie, as though she read into the recess of his soul, and could see a martyrdom there, though in fact she could not penetrate any further than the boy's eyeball. "'I beg you to note,' Mr. Prohack remarked, "'that as the glasses have only been filled once, and three of them are at least a quarter full, only the equivalent of two and a half champagne glasses has actually been drunk by four people, which will not explain much gaiety.' If the old gentleman is gay, and he does not assert that he is not, the true reason lies in either the caviar, or the pâté de foie gras, or in his crystal conscience. Have a drink, Charles. Finish mine, my pet, said Eve, holding forth her tumbler, and Charlie obeyed. A touching sight, observed Mr. Prohack. Now, as Charlie has managed to spare us a few minutes out of his thrilling existence, I want to have a few words with him in private about an affair of state. There's nothing that you oughtn't to hear the company, but a great deal that you probably wouldn't understand, 
and the last thing we desire is to humiliate you. That's so, isn't it, Carlos? Uh, it is, Charles quickly agreed, without a sign of self-consciousness. Now then, hostess, can you lend us another room? Boudoir, morning room, smoking room, card room, even ballroom. Anything will do for us. Possibly Ozzy's study? Father, father, sister warned him against an excess of facetiousness. You can either go into our bedroom, or you can sit on the stairs and talk. As father and son disappeared together into the bedroom, which constituted a full half of the entire flat, Mr. Brahack noticed on his wife's features an expression of anxiety, tempered by an assured confidence in his own wisdom and force. He knew, indeed, that he had made quite a favourable sensation by his handling of Sissy's tendency to a hard austerity. Nevertheless, when Charles shut the door of the chamber and they were enclosed together, Mr. Brohack could feel his mighty heart beating in a manner worthy of a schoolgirl entering an examination room. The chamber had apparently been taken bodily out of a doll's house and furnished with furniture manufactured for pygmies. It was very full, presenting the aspect of a room in a warehouse. Everything in it was bijou, in the trade sense, and everything harmonised in a charming Japanese manner with everything else, except an extra truckle bed, showing crude arm feet under a blazing counterpane borrowed from a Russian ballet, which second bed had evidently just been added for the purposes of conjugal existence. The dressing-table alone was unmistakably symptomatic of a woman. Some of Ozzy's wondrous trousers hung from stretchers behind the door, and the inference was that these had been displaced from the wardrobe in favour of Sissy's frocks. It was all highly curious and somewhat pathetic, and Mr. Prohack, contemplating, became anew a philosopher, as he realised that the tiny apartment was the true expression of his daughter's individuality and volition. She had imposed this crowded inconvenience upon her willing spouse, and there was the grandiose Charles, for whom the best was never good enough, sitting down nonchalantly on the truckle-bed. And it appeared to Mr. Brahack only a few weeks ago that the two children had been playing side by side in the same nursery, and giving never a sign that their desires and destinies would be so curious. Mr. Brohack felt absurdly helpless. True, he was the father, but he knew that he had nothing whatever to do, beyond trifling gifts of money and innumerable fairly witty sermons, divided about equally between the pair, with the evolution of those mysterious and fundamentally uncontrollable beings, his son and his daughter. The enigma of life pressed disturbingly upon him as he took the other bed, facing Charles, and he wondered whether Sissy, in her feminine passion for self-sacrifice, insisted on sleeping in the truckle contraption herself, or whether she permitted Ozzy to be uncomfortable. 5. I just came along, Charles opened simply, because Lady Emma was so positive that I ought to see you. She said that you very much wanted me to come. It isn't as if I wanted to bother you, or you could do any good. He spoke in an extremely low tone, almost in a whisper. Mr. Brack comprehended that the youth was trying to achieve privacy in a domicile where all conversation and movements were necessarily more or less public to the whole flat. Charles' restraint, however, showed little or no depression, disappointment, or disgust, and no despair. "'But what's it all about, if I've not been too curious?' Mr. Brack inquired cautiously. "'It's all about my being up the spout, Dad. I've had a flutter, and it hasn't come off, and that's all there is to it. I needn't trouble you with the details, but you may believe me when I tell you that I shall bob up again. 
What's happened to me might have happened to anybody, and has happened to a pretty fair number of city swells. You mean bankruptcy? Well, yes, bankruptcy's the word. I'd much better go right through with it. The chit thinks so, and I agree. The chit? Mimi. Oh, so you call her that, do you? No, I never call her that. But that's how I think of her. I call her Miss Winstock. I'm glad you let me have her. She's been very useful, and she's going to stick by me. Not that there's any blooming sentimental nonsense about her. Oh, no. By the way, I know the mater and sis think she's a bit heron scarum, and you do too. Nevertheless, she was just as strong as Lady M that I should stroll up and confess myself. She said it was due to you. Lady M didn't put it quite like that. The truckle bed creaked as Charlie shifted uneasily. They caught a faint murmur of talk from the other room, and Sissy's laugh. Lady Masculum happened to tell me once that you'd been selling something before you knew how much it would cost you to buy it. Of course, I don't pretend to understand finance myself. Ha, I'm only a civil servant on the shelf. But to my limited intelligence, such a process of putting the cart before the horse seems likely to lead to trouble, said Mr. Grohag, as as it were, ruminating. Oh, she told you that, did she? Charlie smiled. Well, the good lady was talking through her hat. That affair's all right. At least it would be if I could carry it through. But of course I can't now. It'll go in the general mess. If I was free, I wouldn't sell it at all. I'd keep it. There'd be no end of money in it, and I was selling it too cheap. It's a combine, or rather it would have been a combine, of two of the best paper mills in the country. And if I got it and could find time to manage it, my word, you'd see. No, what's done me in is a pure and simple stock exchange gamble, my dear father. Nothing but that. Are our shares. R. R. What's that? Dad, where have you been living these years? Royal Rubber Corporation, of course. They dropped to eighteen shillings. They ought to have done. I bought a whole big packet on the understanding that I should have a fortnight to fork out. They were bound to go up again. Haven't been so low for eleven years. How could I have foreseen that old Sample would go and commit suicide and make a panic? I never read the financial news except the quotations of my own little savings, and I've never heard of an old sampler, said Mr. Prohack. It's really he was a front-page item for four days, Charlie exclaimed, raising his voice and then dropping it again, and he related in a few biting phrases the recent history of the R.R. I wouldn't have minded so much, he went on, if your particular friend Mr. Softly Bishop wasn't at the bottom of my purchase. His name only appears for some of the shares, but I've got a pretty good idea that it's he who's selling all of them to yours truly. He must have known something, and a rare fine thing he'd have made of the deal, if I wasn't going bust, because I'm sure now he was selling to me what he hadn't got. Mr. Brohack's whole demeanour changed at the mention of Mr. Bishop's name. His ridiculous snobbish pride reared itself up within him. He simply could not bear the idea of softly Bishop having anything against a member of his family. Sooner would the inconsistent fellow have allowed innocent widows and orphans to be ruined through Charlie's plunging than that softly Bishop should fail to realise a monstrous profit through the same agency. "'I'll see you through, my lad,' said he briefly, in an ordinary casual tone. "'No, thanks. You won't,' Charlie replied. "'I wouldn't let you even if you could. But you can't. It's too big.' "'Ah! How big is it?' Mr. Brohack challengingly raised his chin. "'Well,' You want to know the truth, it's between a hundred and forty and a hundred and fifty thousand pounds. I mean, that's what I should need to save the situation. 
You? cried the terror of the department in amaze, accustomed though he was to dealing in millions. He had gravely miscalculated his sum. Ten thousand he could have understood, even twenty thousand. But a hundred and fifty! You must have been mad! Only because I have failed, said Charles. Yes, it'll be a great affair. I shall really make my name. Everybody will expect me to bob up again. I shan't disappoint them. Of course, some people will say I oughtn't to have been extravagant. Grand Babylon Hotel and so on. What rot! A flea-bite! Why, my expenses haven't been seven hundred a month! Mr. Brohack sat aghast, but admiration was not absent from his sentiments. The lad was incredible in the scale of his operations. He was unreal, wagging his elegant legs so calmly that in the midst of all that fragile Japanese lacquer, and the family, grotesquely unconscious of the vastness of the issues, chatting domestically only a few feet away. But Mr. Brahack was not going to be outdone by his son, however Napoleonic his son might be. He would maintain his prestige as a father. "'I'll see you through,' he repeated, with studied quietness. "'But look here, Dad, you only came into a hundred thousand. I can't have you ruining yourself. And even if you did ruin yourself—' "'I have no intention of ruining myself,' said Mr. Brohack. "'Nor shall I change in the slightest degree my mode of life. "'You don't know everything, my child. "'You aren't the only person on earth who can make money. "'Where do you imagine you get your gifts from? Your mother?' "'But be silent. "'Tomorrow morning gilt-edged, immediately saleable securities "'will be placed at your disposal for a hundred and fifty thousand pounds. "'I never indulge in wildcat stock myself. "'And let me tell you there can be no question of your permitting or not permitting. "'I'm your father, and please don't forget it.' It doesn't happen to suit me that my infant prodigy of a son should make a mess of his career, and I won't have it. If there's any doubt in your mind as to whether you or I are the strongest, rule yourself out of the competition this instant. It'll save you trouble in the end. Mr. Prohack had never felt so happy in his life, and yet he had had moments of intense happiness in the past. He could feel the skin of his face burning. "'You'll get it all back, Dad,' said Johnny later. No amount of suicides can destroy the assets of the R.R. It's only that the market lost its head and absolutely broke to pieces under me. In three months, my poor boy— Mr. Prohack interrupted him. Do try not to be an ass. And he had the pleasing illusion that Charles was just home from school. And mind, not one word, not one word to anybody whatever. Six. The other three were still modestly chatting in the living-room when the two great mysterious men of affairs returned to them. But Sissy had cleared the dining-room table, and transformed the place into a drawing-room for the remainder of the evening. They were very feminine. Even Ozzie had something of the feminine attitude of fatalistic, attending upon events beyond feminine control. He had it, indeed, far more than the vigorous-minded Sissy had it. They were cheerful, with a cheerfulness that made up intact what it lacked in sincerity. Mr. Prohack had compared them to passengers on a ship which is in danger. With a word, with an inflection, he reassured everybody, and yet said naught, and the cheerfulness instantly became genuine. Mr. Prohack was surprised at the intensity of his feelings. He was thoroughly thrilled by what he himself had done. Perhaps he had gone too far in telling Charlie that the putting down of a hundred and fifty thousand pounds could be accomplished without necessitating any change in his manner of living but he did not care what change might be involved. He had the sense of having performed a huge creative act, and of the reality of the power of riches. 
For weeks he had not been imaginatively cognizant of the fact that he was rich. He glanced secretly at the boy Charles and said to himself, To that boy I am like a god. He was dead and I have resurrected him. He may achieve an enormous reputation after all. Anyhow, he is an amazing devil of a fellow, and he's my son, and no one comprehends him as I do. Mr. Prohack became jolly to the point of uproariousness, without touching a glass. He was intoxicated, not by the fermentation of grapes, but by the magnitude and magnificence of his own gesture. He was the monarch of the company, and getting a bit conceited about it. The sole creature who withstood him in any degree was Sissy. She had firmness. She has married the right man, said Mr. Prohack to himself. The so-called feminine instinct is for the most part absurd, but occasionally it justifies its reputation. She has chosen her husband with unerring insight into her needs and his. He will be happy. She will have the anxieties of responsible power. But I am not her husband. And he spoke aloud, masterfully. Sissy! Yes, Dad, what now? I've uh, satisfactorily transacted affairs with my son. I will now try to do the same with my daughter. A few moments with you in the council chamber, please. Oswald also, if you like. Sissy smiled kindly at her awaiting spouse. Perhaps I'd better deal with my own father alone, darling. Ozzie accepted the decision. Look here, I think I must be off, Charlie put in. I've got a lot of work to do. I expect you have, Mr. Prokak concurred. By the way, you might meet me at Smaith and Smaith's at uh, ten-fifteen in the morning. Charlie nodded and slipped away. Infant, said Mr. Brohack to the defiantly smiling bride who awaited him in the council chamber, has your mother said anything to you about our wedding present? No, Dad. No, of course she hasn't. And do you know why? Because she daren't. With your infernal independence you've frightened the life out of the poor lady. That's what you've done. Your mother will doubtless have a talk with me tonight, and tomorrow she will tell you what she has decided to give you. Please let there be no nonsense. Whatever the gift is, I should be obliged if you would accept it, and use it without troubling us with any of your theories about the proper conduct of life. Wisdom and righteousness existed before you, and there's just a chance that they'll exist after you. Do you take me? Quite, father. Good. You may become a great girl yet. We are now going home. Thanks for a very pleasant evening. In the car, beautifully alone with Eve, who was in a restful mood, Mr. Brohack said, I shall be very ill in a few hours. Patty de foie gras is the devil, but Cavalier is Beelzebub himself. Eve merely gazed at him in gentle, hopeless reproach. He prophesied truly. He was very ill. And yet, through the succeeding crises, he kept smiling sardonically. When I think, he murmured once with grimness, that that fellow bishop had the impudence to ask us to lunch, and Charlie too, Charlie too. Eve, attendant, inquired sadly what he was talking about. Nothing, nothing, said he. My mind is wandering. Let it. End of part two of chapter twenty-two.